Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We are all, as humans, naturally predisposed for honesty. Our brains are at their maximum performance and efficiency when we are honest. And so are our, phys- our physical health as well. We are more physically healthy when we're honest. But if we get put in environments that are less than that, we will succumb. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated, or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. I don't even need to cite the statistics from Gallup or Edelman. Just look around. Trust in our leaders has plummeted. Engagement is in at an all-time low. People are quitting or quiet quitting while they stay. Corporate malfeasance continues to get exposed. Inequity persists across society. We're no longer talking to each other. It's no wonder that it's so easy right now to be cynical today about our leaders, about our work, and today's companies. If you feel that way, hang in there. Because today's guest brings a message of hope. And that hope comes in the form of his latest, and I would say his most important work, his book, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Today's guest is leadership expert Ron Carucci. Ron is managing partner at Navalent, who has dedicated his career to improving organizations and our leadership. Lest you think you're in for feel-good, happy talk, that is not what I want to cover in this podcast, Ron's book brings tremendous research, longitudinal research, which is the best kind, case examples, practical insights, and strategies to bear on the topic of how our organizations, leaders, teams can be ethical and create more impact, meaning, and joy, and still crush it on the bottom line. He really gets you to think deeply about the power that you have and the choices that you make. Ron, thank you, and welcome back to 97% Effective. Thanks for having me back again, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Awesome. You have this crazy idea, Ron, that what if we loved showing up to work every day, fulfilled, challenged, 
purpose, dignity, fairly compensated. I mean, where do you have and get this radical notion from? Well, so it, <laughs> I haven't seen it. Right? Um, it was having studied, you know, so many wonderful leaders and organizations doing it, um, which wasn't how this journey began. You know, we went back to our our data to, at 15 years to say, and, and rather than sort of, uh, unlike rising to power, where we actually had a specific hypothesis and problem to solve, we decided to say, well, if the, intel- if the technology is so intelligent, why don't we ask it what we should be asking it? And so we fed in the 15 years of data with no hypothesis. With no, we gave some you know, definitional parameters, but nothing, nothing specifically to query to see if it would come back with any interesting drill sites for where there could be some loading correlations of things. And indeed, one of them was truth-telling and honesty. And I thought, ooh, that'd be interesting. Let's go back and drill there and see. Because I, you know, I thought, well, if we could predict the conditions under which people you know, are good-hearted, tell the truth, behave fairly, suffer greater good, and the conditions under which they lie, cheat, and be self-interested. And, and by the way, how is it that somebody who one day is one of them and suddenly the next day you know, is doing another Volkswagen thing or another Theranos thing or another Wells Fargo thing. Those things didn't happen overnight. So we went back and did it and indeed found that you could actually predict that there were four operative conditions in organizations, at least well, we, there were probably seven or eight in the data. We picked the four that were the most statistically significant and wrote about those. But that, the goal wasn't the book. We published the research and then I get all these crazy questions from people saying, could you run the whole college admission scandal through your findings to see how that fits? Or could you go re, you know, l- screen the entire Wells Fargo story through your findings to see how they, they and I'm, I'm like, cool, that's, I'd rather have, I'd rather have, you know, root canal without Novocaine. But we did, we did one, we did one or two of them and wrote about them, but it's just soul sucking work. But the haunting question for me was, isn't anybody doing this? Like I can't have I can't have found these things that nobody's doing. Is who's somebody must be embodying these things. Somebody must be actually, whether they call them these things or not, somebody must be living out this goodness. And so I began to hunt to, to see if there were folks that, and that's when the avalanche, both emotionally and you know, research-wise, began to happen. They're everywhere. They were coming out of the woodwork. You know, leaders, organizations that I'm like, that just make your heart go faster and they make you proud to want to talk to them and like you want to emulate them and wow, I love that person as my boss. And that's when I decided to write the book. I'm like, okay, these are curating these stories. That's the reason to do the book. And that's where my hope comes from is these are ordinary people with extraordinary character and, you know, goodness, but not nothing that's in, in, you know, all of us mere mortals could do what these leaders were doing. And so using their stories to make my findings actionable, you know, letting them light the path and using their success as a blueprint, that was the fun part of the book. And that's where I get my hope from. Yes. And I will say the book and your website where you've got these tremendous videos, moments of truth, uh, of a, many of those interviews, 
is full of these examples, right? A lot of companies that most of us have never heard of. And so shining light on them and, and bringing the hope, but also illustrating these core principles um, and things that can be learned is absolutely tremendous. And I, and I love your work. Um, when, when, it, when I describe this to friends or clients, I say, to be honest, is about ethics, right? And, and a tremendously useful guide. And I want to ask you here at the outset, you chose the word honesty, and the book's not titled To Be Ethical. Can you say why you chose honesty? Maybe offer a quick definition as we start here. And it's funny because um, I, I almost never use the word ethics. Um, and I know the ethics community, that's you know, a, a, certainly one place where the book has found a lot of good favor, and I'm grateful for that. But people hear that word, and they, uh, they go right to the, the department. This is a book about culture. It's about shaping a, an environment where people can thrive. So honesty was the word that the research produced, right? But as we sort of looked at the correlating behaviors in the data that sort of mapped to that word, it wasn't just about telling the truth. That, you know, it turns out that honesty if you look at it in practice, is not a character trait. It's not some a moral principle. It's actually a muscle. It's actually an, an intellectual set of muscles and capabilities that you actually have to be good at. And if you want to be good at it, you actually have to practice. But what the definitions landed on, or if you look at the correlations, it was actually um, truth, justice, and purpose. It was you have to say, not just say the right thing, but do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. You know, I mean, as you alluded to at the beginning of this, Michael, you don't have to look around very far to see that we're in a trust recession, more than any other kind. And today, the bar is just so much higher. If you want to earn and keep the trust of others, uh, maybe even a better title for this book would have been Trust Me or Trustworthy, because that's the outcome of this book. You and your organization become trustworthy and worthy of the loyalty and commitment and dedication of others. In, in your in your sphere. So realizing that, you know, the sphere of what it takes to be labeled honest, you could tell the truth and, be, and then be labeled as, okay, he's a good person or he's good to work with or, you know, he'll shoot straight with you. But if you want to be labeled honest, then you then you have to do all three. You have to say, say the right thing, do the right thing and, and do those for the right reason, which is hard. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, we, we often, we hear the quip of, well, he did the right thing for the wrong reason, you know, and somehow that sort of lessens the blow of, but what, what did you just give your organization permission to do by letting that example be seen? You've been now out speaking widely about, to be honest, but clearly been doing work, you know, on this area for years. It's a huge theme that runs through what you do. You know, to me, there's just there's a hands-down moral argument, right? Why this topic is important. Your book also cites the research as why honesty also drives employee engagement, bottom line business results, and more. I'm curious, as you've been out there speaking, as you work with leaders or even skeptics, right? Say, okay, this is good. Does it drive results? But which of the kind of points or arguments that you put out there most resonate, get them to pay attention, take this seriously, because it's not just doing a training program for a day. This is hard work. These are things that you have to do, go to the gym, the muscle that you said. Yeah. What, what is it that moves people? 
I just love the response to the mm. research. I, 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 it was so unexpected. I thought people would be like, this is boring or, well, we all know this already. But so I think, you know, for people who are in environments of inequity, the message on justice and accountability has been really resonant. Um, for people who are in environments of, you know, of secrecy, the transparency message has been really inspiring. But I think the last finding was the rivalry, the we-they. I think people have been really moved by the notion that putting ourselves in the place at a, at a border, whether it's an organizational border or an, uh, a ethnic border or an, an economic border of somebody who's different than us and learning to uh, build a bridge across that boundary and, and, and treating people of diff- who are different than you with collaborative regard, with the ability to work together. I think people are loving the fact that there's a, a correlation to, to truth-telling that if you have, the, the more fragmented your relationships are, the more dishonest you're going to be. Because once you fragment the truth and create dueling truths, now my goal isn't to find a single source of truth anymore. Now it's to make me right and you wrong. So I think people have been really pleasantly surprised in a world that's so polarized today, in a world where you know, we have lost civility, we have lost um, the ability to have good discourse, to stay friends over differences. Tragically, we've lost that. I think it was heartening for people to hear that there's a there's a moral cost to that, but there's a great moral gain if we get past it. That piece really stuck with me in light of the fact that we're not having conversations. It's very polarized, down to tweets. Kind of enragement is is right. the form a new form of engagement. You should write that article. Yes, <laughs> you got me thinking about that. Let me before we go into the, the research and and some specific questions on that. People yearn for the type of organizations that that you describe. That that's pretty clear. But sometimes, maybe not so much after they read your book because they see there are lots of organizations out there. It feels like these types of organizations are unicorns. Like where where are they? Because it's not mine. And you know what I hear, Ron, all the time with clients, and this is kind of a central question as we start is, hey, I'm doing all the things that Ron says, <laughs> okay? But the company <laughs> is not rewarding for me for it. In fact, they're punishing me for it. And those that are not embodying the honesty, the four principles in your book are the ones who are getting ahead. They're the ones getting promoted. They're the ones you know, getting the resources, and it is this question, are, are these good individuals, are, are they one in the wrong company, or are they not being honest with themselves, uh, or, or are they missing something else? Yeah. Well, sometimes it's the you know, right plow, wrong field, right? Okay. It is, that is the case. But I've never, so I think a lot of times when folks, when that's the lens they have on the world, you know, I'm doing this and nobody's rewarding me for it, but they're all doing crappy things and getting rewarded for it. If you actually typically un dissect the context, that's actually not what's happening, okay. right? It may have happened one time, and they're feeling the PTSD and, and the injustice of it and projecting that a lot. Because it's, it's not typically that somebody like that would have the wherewithal to stay in an environment like that, if that's really what was happening. Whenever I ask leaders, do your people trust you? They'll say, sure, why wouldn't they? I'm like, okay, but why should they? I'll get a litany of, I'm doing all the things, like you say. And what they'll, li- what they'll inventory for me are all their intentions. All the things they mean to do. 
I'm, I'm a good person, I advocate for them, you know, but without evidence, right? And so they're wanting credit for their intentions, not the evidence of those intentions. And if you ask the people who they lead, well, is this how you experience this person's leader leadership? It's often different than their intentions. Because the leaders who actually fully embody these principles, and no leader would ever say they do all of them perfectly, right? Or no organization has certainly done, done them all perfectly. They would all be the first to admit they have flaws and places where they fall short in, in these findings. And so this is not an all or nothing study. The nice thing about the statistical models was that they were, not, they were cumulative, but they were not all or nothing, right? So you could, you could improve your, for example, your transparency by 25% and get a 12% hit on honesty, right? So you could move the needle on these things and, and improve. You don't have to go to all the way to bright to get the full benefit. So I think leaders who are asking themselves, this environment doesn't, isn't conducive to me behaving that way, have to ask yourself the hard question, is this where I wanna spend my life? Because one of the, we did a lot of neuroscience research. I wanted to understand how our brains work in these environments and what, what is it we're predisposed and wired to do in the face of these four findings and what happens when we do or don't do them. Interestingly enough, what, we, what, what the brain science tells us is that we are, we are all, as humans, naturally predisposed for honesty. Our brains are at their maximum performance and efficiency when we are honest. And so are our, phys our physical health as well. We are more physically healthy when we're honest. But if we get put in environments that are less than that, we will succumb. We will adapt. And unfortunately, as our friend Dan Ariely says, we, we have slippery slopes we don't have slippery ascents. And so you have to really ask yourself, you know, lines you swore you'd never move, you know, even a little bit, are they suddenly more malleable than they ever were? Because that's, that's a signal, that's a, a red flag that says perhaps you're in a place that's not the best place for you. And we have the last year of evidence to say that, you know, 80 million em employees bailed you know, many of whom, for the reason, this is not an environment conducive to my well-being. Yeah. So that environment, really critical. So thinking about how you design that, how you shape it, what the culture looks like. And I'll add, and I'll put in the show notes, your website, you can kind of answer a bunch of questions to do a diagnosis on your own organization. I think that's quite interesting. You've alluded to the, to the four findings. Let's, let's talk about the research or give folks an overview of it. 15-year longitudinal study analyzing... 3,200 interviews. And again, you, you boil those down. You said seven, but really there's four best practices that drive honesty. Just a quick overview of those. Yeah. So the first was, you know, be who you say you are, you know, a consistent identity. We all have statements of identity in our organizations, missions, values, purposes, whatever. Um, turns out that if they're not lived experience, you've now institutionalized duplicity. You've said around here, we say one thing and do another. And when that's the case, you're three times more likely to have people be dishonest. But if those actions and words match, if there's no say-do gap, um, you're three times more likely to have people be honest around you. Uh, accountability. So are, are people's contributions treated with justice, fairness, and dignity, honor? As we move into a, a workforce where largely all of our remits are reflections of who we are, our analysis, our creativity, our ideas, our feedback, our thinking, that when our, our accountability systems treat those as separate things, we, we dehumanize people. But when we treat people as if they, they are their work, 
because many ways they are, with honor and with the ability to succeed no matter who they show up as or what they look like, um, you're four times more likely to have people be honest. But if people feel like cogs in your wheel, used, demeaned, demoralized, dishonored, and that the system is rigged against them, you're four times more likely to have them be dishonest because now they have to embellish their accomplishments and hide their mistakes. Transparency. How, you make, how, how choices are constructed. So if I walk into a room, you know, often referred to as a meeting, and people around that table there are uh, having a discourse, and the person in front of the room is presenting something, and I believe that there, there are genuine exchanges of different ideas. The person in the front of the room is, doesn't have an agenda or isn't trying to spin the information to get me to act or think a certain way. And, and if I wanted to offer a point of view different than the one that's prevailing in the room, I'd be welcome to do that, and it'd be okay. That that's what transparency looks like, and that means you're now three and a half times more likely to have people be honest because the truth is in the room. But if I walk into that room and it's just orchestrated theater, where the, it's the, either decisions already been made or it's clearly heading one way, the person in the front of the room has an agenda. The people are all nodding their heads in the right direction. And the last thing I think you want to hear from me is something different. Now you've sent the truth out of the room and me with it, and now you're three and a half times more likely to have me be dishonest. And lastly. Border wars, you know, cross-functional rivalry, you know, the classic seams of supply chain and operations, R&D and marketing, you know, sales and marketing, HR and everybody. You know, when those seams are stitched well, when the tensions, the natural tensions at those intersections are held well, you are, you are six times more likely to have people be honest with you. But if those seams are not stitched well, if there are border wars, if we have tribal rivalry, we have we-they thinking. Now you're six times more likely to have people be dishonest because now you've fragmented the organization and with it the truth. Like I said before, the, the models are cumulative. And so if you are good at all four of those things, you are 16 times more likely to have people be honest in your organization. That's a huge multiplier of good right. behavior. And again, that means say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. But if you suck at all four of them, now you're 16 times more likely to find yourself in a newspaper headline you never wanted to be in. Right, right. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. What I like about the book, so it looks kind of at two levels, what we can kind of do as individuals, and then also what you know, we as organizations or, or those who can affect it in terms of the design, the environment. Going back to your point before, that environment's very important because if it's working against us, it's going to kind of like drag us <laughs> towards that, no matter our own, you know, personal energy uh, to combat yeah. that. And so, you know, people are very frustrated, Ron, and, and understandably so. And I, I, would, I want to start with kind of the, this question around, do the ends justify the means? And, and, and let me talk about this. It just feels like if you, you know, want to make wider, deeper change to this point it just raised, hey, it would be great if you could go change the rules of the system, right? You have the power, the influence, often at the top, not always necessarily, but a lot of it is positional, that you can, you know, get rid of certain people, you can put in processes, many of which are outlined in your book. So in some ways, that leads many people, we also see it in kind of politics, right, of people who are fed up, you know, because they're, they're not getting to those positions. And to say, well, if the ends justify the means, right, if I can 
get there. I might have to play a little in this environment to, to get up there. Well, then, and that might require me being a little bit of a chameleon or bend the rules. And then when I'm there, I'll go change it. <laughs> <sighs> said, said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I mean, this is a long, could be a long discussion, but how do you respond to that? You know, so it's, it's a fool's errand to try and think that way. It's not, mm. it won't work. Most of us so undervalue our own agency. Mm. You know, we forfeit the fact that, well, if I'm, I'm just an individual contributor, I'm a low man on a totem pole, you know, I'm a rank and file, that people put themselves in these boxes and assume that their influence, their example, their agency is been neutered. And that's where the problem starts. Yeah. Right? The reality is that, you know, you don't have to go along to get along when it comes to this kind of stuff. And everybody else is thinking it. If, if you're seeing an overt, you know, environment of untrustworthiness, it's not a secret. And so you, you're, you have to ask yourself, are you selling your soul to fit in? Are you compromising something that is dear to you to not make waves, to not ruffle feathers? Um, and I'm not by any means suggesting this is easy to do, but... Um, you can you can have competent courage, as my friend Jim Dieter talks about in his book, you know, choosing courage. You you can have a voice. Um, you one person can make a difference, um, and you don't have to sit in that environment silently. And 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 if you ever say to yourself, when I have my opportunity, I'll make change. That's just a it's a it's you're just de- deceiving yourself. That's just self deception. Because if you don't believe you can make change now, you're not suddenly going to have some set of beliefs later. Even if you have more positional power than you do now, you're not suddenly going to believe, okay, now I can make a difference. Because you won't have practiced it. You will have hidden your agency and you won't have actually prepared it to make wider change that you might have an opportunity to do later when you have more positional power. Certainly, positional power is one lever for pulling pulling for change in this area. But the reason I wrote the chapters as you described, Michael, was because I wanted every individual to know you have a difference you can make. You can role model this for somebody. You can be true to who you are for your own well-being and for your own sense of meaning in life. Someone else doesn't have to do this for you. Yeah. What would be a kind of good example here to kind of make this very real where you've seen or you highlight in the book that you know, someone really uses that agency, they're not, they're not at the top, could you, could you give kind of an example here to make this tangible of where? Yeah. So I don't even, I can't remember if this story's in the book or not, but an individual contributor. Oh, it's, yes. Yep. It's, a, I think it's early in the book. In an environment where the organization was going through fairly disruptive change and major distribution centers were being opened and a lot of robotics being introduced and a lot of workforce being laid off. And this woman was being asked to spearhead uh, you know, she wasn't, didn't have a very, very low level job, but she was sort of a, a project manager and was leading the transformation of, of the DC. Uh, and all of her friends were the ones at risk of losing their jobs. And they were all, some of them were trying to get to reskill and to relearn. Many of them were discouraged and angry and bitter. And she felt like, wow, we need this talent. Why would we not try and, and, you know, the middle managers that she was working for were sort of on a a fast pace to get this get this work done, get the layoffs done with, and get onto the savings that they were trying to pursue. And she was having to, she was trying to coach some of them on the side and trying to train some of them. 
but she just felt like what was happening was wrong. Like we were mistreating people and we were not preparing them for a future that they had been so loyal to this company for. So she found a way to get a message up around the managers of his district. And there, were, and there were two distribution centers in the company, this one, and then once it was finished, they were going to have to do it, they were going to, have to do it all again. To get a message to the CEO of the company that this was happening, and it was, she was troubled by it. And so, you know, the CEO, knowing that it would have been inappropriate for him to reach down six levels and intervene, arranged to go on a tour. So showed up at the DC to, to see progress on the robotics, progress on whatever, and he specifically asked for Melody to give him the tour. And while she gave him the tour, she made her concerns known about, we, we, there are ways we can repurpose these, this talent. We have the time. We should, it's the right thing to do. And she convinced him. And he looked at the, the DC manager, the executive, the VP who ran it, and said, I'm assuming we're following her lead here. I'm assuming that we're doing what she says. And of course, he's like, uh, oh, Yeah. And he's like, great. And when she's finished her, I want her to do the next one too. And so, you know, she, yes, she had to in, invoke positional power, but she did it. But she actually then had to, I mean, the CEO didn't execute it. She had to execute it. She did the job training program. She did the retraining. And not everybody made it because not everybody wanted to. But a lot of jobs were saved and a lot of reskilling happened and repurposing of talent happened because she was so convicted that what they were doing was wrong. Um, and she knew from her own ability to reskill that while it was hard, she did it. And she knew that there were ways, you know, that, that talent could be redeployed and those people could continue to have meaningful careers with the company rather than being let go. And she knew that, you know, in a, not a very big town that they were in, a, that it could have, I mean, the, the, the ripple impact was going to be terrible. And she just felt like her company was not being true to itself. They were not being who they said they were. Um, they weren't having honest comments. So, I mean, you could screen all four findings through that one, but it's certainly an example of, you know, a, a sense of mission and purpose to say, I, I, we can do better. Yeah. And she made it happen. And what I like about that illustration was this point of having the courage to do it, but also finding a way. This central point of agency, which is a topic we have talked about, which is to, to look at the power she does have. Maybe she didn't have the positional power, but invoking it. Probably also a flip side of this was the savviness of the CEO, <laughs> going back to right. a previous discussion we had of how yeah. to, to, to make that happen. And not, and never, and not throw her under the bus because, he, because she reached out to him, right? Because that could have gone sideways for her. Exactly. And he needed to make sure that didn't happen. Yeah, mm. yeah. Very good example there. To the point that we brought up earlier about bridging divides that you said very much resonated with people as you have been speaking about your book, sharing the research. I think we're, everyone is so hungry for the strategies to how to, to do this, you know, bridging between, among difference, between groups. And, and you point out a couple, I, I found very useful pieces, finding common ground, you know, dropping or challenging false notions, or, or even challenging some assumptions that listening to someone means that you agree with them. We sometimes falsely equate or put those together. Because I think this is such a important topic, and, and people should read your book, particularly this section of it, but any best practice that you would further point out about how to bridge divides, acknowledge, respect, difference, and, and restore some civility? I think it's on a society level, but it's also within companies. Well, you know, 
everybody in organizations has a they. Oh, here they come. What do they want? You see them in your caller ID, you roll your eyes. We're all tribal by nature. We naturally are tribal thinkers as human beings, and we sort of hunker down within our tribe. And so when someone from another tribe wants something, we are predisposed to see them as a rival or an enemy. I would ask you, who's your they? Who's the other, that person that you just think they drive you crazy, you, you think they're fill in the blank, incompetent, mean, whatever. And, um, you know, and you've othered them, and, and, and you probably badmouth them, and you probably colluded with other people to badmouth them. That's your opportunity to reach out and have coffee with them and say, I think we can do better. I'm sure I can be a better colleague to you. And I'm sure that I'm, I don't have a full picture and understand. You know, and so I, rather than listening to the made-up stories in my head, I'd like to know more about you and your work. And, and if you do that, I guarantee you will learn things you didn't know. You will, you will see this person in a rehumanized way, and you will realize that many of your assumptions were flawed. And suddenly you have your, your mind will open. Happens every time. Every time someone, I ask someone to do this, somebody do it. Or I do, I do it with teams. We call them seam startups. We bring people across seams, especially with seams that are ruptured, together. And we have a facilitated process by which we bring them through. Actually, actually the outline for how to do it is in the book. Mm. And they inevitably discover that they had misguided beliefs about one another or, or competing metrics or things that were continuing to you know, encourage rivalry. The other question to ask yourself, which may be a bit more sobering, is who's they are you? Mm. Who's the person that rolls their eyes when you call? Who's the person that thinks you're a pain in the ass? That you drive crazy? That you, you, know, that you decide I don't care? But if we keep othering each other, yeah. if we keep putting each other in these boxes that allow, and allow those labels to remain true, we cut ourselves off from so much goodness and so much opportunity and at some point it backfires because at some point you will need one of those othered people that you othered yeah. and they make have a lot of grace for you and show up well, or you may be out of luck. Ron, you said the reception has been tremendous on your book and it's just speaking to you also brings a lot of hope hearing these stories. What have you found companies have most, you know, pulled from your work and are starting to implement that's starting to make a difference? Is there anything kind of tangible you would point out that's been really great to see? I think a lot, I think a lot of companies are taking, re-looking at their identity statements you know, and, and, and asking how are they really embedded? Are they, are they just more than, are they more than cosmetic? I think a lot of companies are, you know, DEI people are realizing that you, know, you have to embed equity in your accountability systems, in your resource allocation systems in your HR systems. And I think are taking a look at those things. So yeah, yeah I, mean, I think I've heard lots of wonderful stories of people who are trying different aspects. I, I wanted to leave no stone unturned. And so every chapter is packed with, is. here's how to do this. So that there, nobody could leave and go, I don't know what to do. And you know what I tell everybody is just pick one thing. Just pick one thing and start. And you know, let that parlay into momentum and a natural appetite to do more. I love the fact that there's tremendous analysis, but you always end your talks <laughs> and, and the book and every section with a part, get busy. Take one piece, start to do it. I've, I'm a firm believer here that action will drive, drive further insight. And, and I wanted to, as we kind of come to an end here, 
uh, flip this, you are an amazingly curious individual, and and clearly you have dedicated your 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 purpose to researching this area, to being a thought leader, helping people create better organizations. I loved these moments of truth interviews that you had that was probably mm-hmm. part of the process of the book. Lots of pearls of wisdom that came in there. And I'm wondering for you, like, was there a particular moment or story in there that was a ha- aha moment for you that, that you'd love to share here? I think it was every one of them was just such an incredible thrill and privilege. And, and so, you know, like you deciding to keep the video assets of these interviews, I knew when I did those interviews that I, we could, I'd want those videos for something. And that's when we decided we could turn them into a TV series. We could turn them into a, ma- a news magazine show, yeah. which people can find all 15. You can binge watch all 15 episodes at tobehonest.net. And they're also on Roku if you have Roku. But I think that the, the meta aha for me was there's such reason to have hope. We don't have to, I mean, you said it earlier, it's the jerks that get the headlines and the clickbait and all the attention, but that's not who's, that's not who's, they're not the majority. I don't think that, I think they're a very loud and obnoxious minority, that I think there are far more good apples than bad. You have to just look for them. I think that for me was, the, I mean, and one after the other, people whose presence you just want to be in, whose leadership you just want to follow and emulate who, you know, who you'd be super proud to work for if you had the chance. Um, I think there are a lot of them out there and we just have to promote them more and, and teach them to use their power well and a little bit more courageously because I think it's them that will quarantine the folks who want to abuse their power. Yeah. Well, we don't have to look for the good apples as much anymore because they are in your book and it is packed. I just want to reiterate what you said before. Every section, exercises, things that you can do on an individual level and an organizational level. And I will end, Ron, just asking, you know, you've written the book. I know that you have given the advice that, that a book launches over three years. So you will be talking about this and sharing it widely. What are you getting busy with next? Well, I don't, I'm still busy with this. I don't know what I thought about next. Um, but I do, I do think that, you know, finding ways to more deeply incorporate this into my work. You know, for example, one of the things I ask leaders to think about, and I would, would ask your listeners to do the same, is if you really want to get better at being more honest, we have to be honest about our dishonesty. We have to be honest about the moments and places that bring us to the moments that we're not our best selves. So I, I would ask you to look at the last 10 days of your calendar and just go back over and pick out five or seven moments where you weren't proud. You know, you embellished data to your boss. You withheld feedback from a direct report to avoid their, you know, defensive response. You were not kind to the barista. You were curt with your kids. Places that you would say, that's not what I value. And what I promise you is if you're honest about inventorying those moments, you will see a pattern. None of our dishonest behavior is random. We come to those moments for chosen purposes. We believe they serve a need. They don't, but we have told ourselves, this is okay, and you know, I will engineer a certain response from somebody. I will feel more self-important. I will feel safer and more protected. I will feel less vulnerable. And if you can get more honest about the engine behind your dishonesty, you can rewrite that narrative and bring yourself to a more honest place. And I think that's the thing I'm learning, that people have to do that work. 
And as I ask people to do it, I'm stunned at how self-honest they can be. I've been in numbers of workshops where people are moved to tears as they think about the dishonesty in their life and the honest life that they want. Aisha Brussel and I do a workshop called Design the Honest Life You Love. And in it, we ask people to go back to these moments of where they learned, they first learned how to choose a behavior for a reason that turns out to be conflicting of their values in some way uh, or dishonest in some way. And it's amazing how hungry they are to actually re-engineer that narrative to something more whole and healthy. So that's what I would leave you with is that's the work we all need to do. So everyone out there, it is time to get busy and to start with that exercise. I love it. I'm going to do it. Ron Carucci, your book, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Thank you so much again, Ron, for being here and having this conversation. Always a pleasure, Michael. I appreciate your work. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.